Welcome to Crime Colts and Coffee. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Bryn. And if it sounds different, it's because... We're recording together <laughs> in the pink hen-out room. We haven't done this in probably... At least a year. A year. If not more. together. If you didn't know, we record separately. So if you ever hear us, like, talking over each other, it's because we're recording in different locations. Yeah, we're not actually fucking rude. <laughs> yeah, but now we're together. I think the last time we recorded together... We did it outside, and we were like, that was a bad idea. Yeah, and there was birds in the background and wind. We were like, it's such a beautiful day, we want to be outside, and then it was a horrible idea. Yeah, but being in the pink henout room, wow, this brings back men. If you're new here, the pink, okay, our niece says hangout room as henout, but she used to say it like that, she doesn't anymore. So we call it the henout room, yeah. and it's all pink, and this is where we used to record all the time together. A true crime, all things creepy podcast. Yeah, just all pink, tiny little room with tiny furniture. <laughs> Surrounded by squish mouths. Oh my god, I totally forgot. Yeah, there's like a unicorn and... This is making me so happy. <clears throat> I miss this so much. I know, we haven't done this in a really long time. And I'm sure the sound quality is probably a lot better. Yeah, you probably don't hear like my dog jumping on the bed <laughs> and Carson in the other room. So you're welcome. No? <laughs> long story short, you're welcome. <laughs> Can we talk about how fucking cold it is outside today? Yeah, I'm in, like, hibernation mode. I I don't want to leave my apartment, but then I'm also depressed about not leaving, so it's just, like, a vicious cycle of this time of the year. Yeah. You know? I'm in kind of shock right now that I'm actually able to see you while we're speaking right now. Because <laughs> of your glasses situation? <laughs> no, because we're actually in front of each other. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but as well as my glasses <laughs> Also, Bryn is blind as a bat and hasn't had glasses for over a month now. <laughs> and she's just okay with it. So. I'm not. <laughs> she, she literally can't see the TV screen. What do you think while you're watching TV? It's just a little blurry. <laughs> I feel like you can't Everyone's see. faces look like a painting. I feel like you can't see anything. <laughs> like an no. oil painting that was smushed together. I'm buying you LASIK for your birthday. It's actually really funny today when mom and I went and got coffee at this one place mm. and breakfast. She was like, oh my gosh, look at their special menu. And I was like, how the <laughs> fuck can you read that? Because it was all the way on the wall in the back. And I'm like, I literally cannot see a single thing it says. So she was just <sighs> whispering it to me in line while we were oh waiting for a table. I just realized you probably couldn't see anything while we were just driving. <laughs> no, I could. Okay. <laughs> I could. It's just not great. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta get some new glasses. Yeah, I do. And if they usually take like a month to get here too. So. Yeah. Well, we're good. Yeah. Anyway, have you ever heard dad say this phrase when it's cold out? Mom brought this up to me a couple months ago and she's like, as your dad would say, and I was like, I've never heard dad say this in my life. I think and I know what it is. She's like, ask Carson and Casey. They'll tell you if you just say, what's the phrase dad uses when it's cold out? Colder than a witch's tit. Yeah. You, it, it was, I was there when she was telling you this. Okay. What does that even mean? How is a witch's tit cold compared to other people? Maybe because they're so wicked, they're just, like, always, like, pointy, <laughs> you know? I don't know. That's just strange to me. <laughs> I've also never heard him say that, yeah. ever. Yeah. But, yeah, it's fucking freezing. And then Carson goes, you shouldn't be complaining. This has been the mildest winter. I was like, which describes how bad this is for me. I hate this so much. Yeah. If it wasn't for, like, family, I would move to where it's warm all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, the fact that it's been quote-unquote mild so far also slightly scares me. Yeah, global warming. What is coming? Fucking terrifying. <laughs> I'm sure whatever is coming is 
going to be here by next week when Timo's away and I get stuck with a snowstorm. Yeah. Yeah, every time Timo leaves for his trip and we get, like, this insane amount of snow and then Bryn is stuck with a shovel, shoveling her whole driveway alone. Passing out by 6.30 from exhaustion (laughs) and cursing in my driveway. My neighbors probably think I'm insane. Uh, Well, I think you should get, like, one of those hand thingies that you push. I think I should get a fucking ATV with a plow attached. That would be very easy as well. Maybe Timo gift that to me if you're listening. Yeah, if you can hear this, Brent shouldn't be left alone in the winters. <laughs> and as a treat, you should just buy her an ATV. You know. Okay, should we get into our coffee review or do we have any recommendations? Other than Ginny and George, we talked about Peripheral already. I just finished it. You really should watch that. That is so fucking good. I'm going. That's my next binge. And it like makes you think the whole time and you're like, I had to re- like rewind a couple times and be like, what the fuck did they just say? Mm-hmm. And like try to piece it all together. Okay, I'm excited. Yeah, it's really good. I do not have any recommendations at the moment. Yeah. So let's get into our coffee. Okay. So today we are doing another cold brew latte from La Colombe Coffee Roasters. And not only are we recording together, we're drinking the same fucking coffee. And they, <laughs> <laughs> none of, neither of us have a recipe. Which never happened. No, kidding. <laughs> so we decided that we're going to crack the can together on the mic. To initiate. <laughs> Ready? This episode. Go. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) so yeah they come in a cute little can so you literally don't have to do anything and this one's peppermint mocha latte did i already say that i don't know but it does have oat milk in it yeah it's oat milk latte so for all those people that will poop their pants me can have (laughs) me Me included i think i mentioned actually the last time we reviewed them how they had oat milk options and i was like i probably should be drinking that option yeah it smells really good Let's take a sip. It smells like Starbucks peppermint latte. Wow. Damn. That is good. That's really fucking good. I mean, I haven't tried all the canned coffees or bottled coffee on the goes in the world, but I think La Colombe... No. (laughs) (laughs) New slash, no. (laughs) But I think La Colombe... They do a good job. so high up there for me. They do a really fucking good job. Yeah. What was the last one we reviewed? Just the... The vanilla. Vanilla. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one's really good. And this is a seasonal one, I think, Mom said. Mom bought these on their website. Again, their website's lacolome.com. Oh, the can literally (laughs) says seasonal batch as Bryn is pointing this job to me. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's seasonal. Yeah. So I don't know how long it's going to be on there, it's really good. And for anyone who wants to check them out on Instagram, their handle is La Colombe Coffee, spelt L-A-C-O-L-O-M-B-E Coffee. And my phone has clearly been paying attention to our podcasting because they leave ads all over my Instagram for La Colombe now. <laughs> so really cool. I love how they do that. Amazing. What are you thinking of the taste? It's very creamy. I agree. I think it's the oat milk. Yeah, I love oat milk. I get oat milk in all of my stuff now. Yeah, I go between oat or almond because sometimes oat milk's a little much for my stomach. Yeah, 125 milligrams of caffeine. Good. I do love how it has definitely that peppermint flavoring to it, but yep. it's not that it's not artificial. Yeah, to the point where it's overwhelming. It's very... It's just nicely tied in there, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, oh, oh my god, it's really good. Mm-hmm. This is probably one of like one of my favorite iced coffee things that I've had. Same, I agree. 
Yeah, I'm gonna rate it a nine. I concur. I concur. <laughs> that needs to be on some merch that we have. They have a ton of stuff on their website, though. They still have oat milk pumpkin spice latte. Mm. So if you're one of those people. Thank you, La Cologne, for being amazing. We adore you. Yeah, and we want to keep trying your coffee, so send us some. So should we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Should we say it together? Yeah, I was going to say that. (laughs) Ready? So So grab grab your coffee coffee and have a morning with us. I just orchestrated it like I was in a (laughs) thing. You did. (laughs) So we did two smaller cases today because we wanted to get the information out there, but they were a little bit shorter. I'm going to start with the case of Elmer Del DeBoer. And as always, I'm going to do a little bit of background. He was born January 22nd, 1949 in Pontiac, Michigan. He was 38 years old at the time of the story, and he was married to a woman named Mary. How fitting. You know what's weird? I just realized when this episode is released, it's going to be released two days before his birthday. Oh my god, that's weird. Yeah. It was on purpose. Happy birthday, Elmer. Happy birthday, Elmer. He was a father of three children named Patricia, Susan, and Anne. He worked as a courier for Lehman Oil Company. On to this chance meeting. Part of his work route for the oil company included stopping at Union 76 gas station. Haven't we talked about this gas station before? I just got chills. We did my whole body. Did, right? Yes, in another case. I don't think it was this specific one, but just the same franchise. The sound of it. Yeah. Union 76. And this was located in Waterford Township near Pontiac, Michigan. Here, he would have to pick up cash receipts, and this was done weekly by Elmer. So this was his job, going around different gas stations, picking up the cash receipts. Here, he ended up meeting Melissa, or Missy Monday. So we're going to refer to her as Monday for the rest of the case. She was the assistant manager of the gas station, and she was only 16 years old at the time. As an assistant manager, who let her do that? I wonder if they knew that. If the gas station knew Knew that that she was 16. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was the 80s. Despite their age gap, Elmer and Monday became close friends. So remember, he was 38, she was 16. It's actually unclear whether Elmer actually knew how old she was. Like Bryn said, maybe like she was playing it off to be a lot older than she was Mm -hmm. by being the assistant manager. There was certain information that was kept from Elmer regarding Monday's life, but he knew that she was in a relationship with Jerry Strickland, who was 20 years old. Strickland and Monday met when she was 15. He apparently, this is like a little bit foggy on the exact details, but apparently he approached her family asking to buy their property or rent out their property and convert it to an orphanage, Hmm. which is just a strange thing to say at 20 years old. I feel like if that was legit, Mm -hmm. that's a really kind thing to do, Mm -hmm. but I also feel like knowing the type of person he is like, later in this case. Angle? Yeah. Yeah, that that was probably he's probably full of shit. Yeah. So apparently like Monday's parents were really like apprehensive about this whole thing and kind of like weirded out by it, but she was quote unquote smitten with Strickland and eventually they ran away together in April of 1986. So what happened to his idea with converting their property. <laughs> right. He was just like, all right, I'm in. That's all I needed. Yeah, I just actually wanted to Maybe he to stalked her. Who knew? Who knows? Know. Elmer also knew that Monday and Strickland had a son together, and they moved from Maryland to Michigan and had their son there. He did not know that Monday was a runaway high school student. So basically, Monday didn't go to class at Hancock High School on April 17th, 1986. 
And this was really strange because she was considered to be a good student. And she was also a basketball player at the school. So I feel like her character just changed once she started Mm -hmm. dating this Strickland. Yeah, she was just like, all right, I'm out. He also did not know that Strickland had a record and was a wanted fugitive. Strickland had previously been convicted of malicious assault against his sister-in-law. Sounds like a nice guy. Yeah, right? Like, not the kind of guy that's going to open an orphanage. No, or the kind of guy that should be this girl's only means of human connection. Right. Because she's not around her family anymore, and she's a fucking teenager. She's 16. Yeah. Sophomore in high school. May 11th, 1987. That morning, Elmer came into the gas station that Monday worked at for the cash receipts. One hour later, around 11 a.m., customers came into the station and found it completely empty, and the front door was also locked. That's weird. Yeah, so because of this, they called the police. Thank God they were vigilant and were like, okay, this isn't right. And Elmer's car was found in the parking lot. There was also an open safe that had around $10,000 cash stolen from it. Wow. And different articles said different things. Most of them said more than $10,000, but some of them said $10,000. Yeah. And Elmer was never seen alive again. Ugh. Was that safe, like, part of his job? I feel like that's maybe where, yeah, maybe aside from cash receipts, he had to pick up and, like, transfer. Cat, yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was probably part of his job. Yeah. So the next day, May 12th, 1987, Elmer's body was found by police 20 miles from the gas station. He was in a wooded area, and he had been shot twice in the back of the head. <sighs> his hands were also handcuffed behind his back. Oh, my God. That is horrifying. That makes me sick to my stomach. So sad. Authorities think that maybe Monday was used to lure Elmer away from his car so they could rob his safe. And they theorized that it was a planned robbery and murder. One article stated this scenario as the theorized version of events. So, this is a perspective that police kind of came up with. Mm -hmm. Elmer opened the safe and was held at gunpoint by Strickland. Monday was told to handcuff herself to Elmer so Elmer would think she was a victim as well, which if that actually happened, that's fucking disgusting. Yeah. Elmer and Monday were then taken by Strickland to the wooded area where Elmer would later be found. Monday was uncuffed as a ploy to make Elmer think they wouldn't be harmed. And then Elmer's hands were then both cuffed behind his back and he was shot twice execution style. Oh my god. I have no words if that man went through that. That's so horrifying. And literally by just doing his job and being friends with this woman perchance. Yeah, like she may have known that the safe was there and mentioned it to her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And then had come up with this plan. So sad. May 12th, 1987. Strickland and Monday bought a car in Pontiac, Michigan and then drove to the West Coast. I wonder if they bought a Pontiac. That's... <laughs> I was wondering the same thing when I wrote that down. I was like, wait a minute. They ended up staying in rural Washington State, Moses Lake. And February 5th, 1988, some sources say February 6th, 1988, so one of those two days, 
Unsolved Mysteries aired an episode that featured Monday and Strickland and covered the case of Elmer DeBoer. Tons of calls came pouring into the hotline with the location of the two, according to the Associated Press. 15 to 20 calls came into the Moses Lake Police Department after the episode was released. Wow. And this was also within 20 minutes of the episode being released. Could you imagine the police, like, not knowing that episode was airing and then all of a sudden getting all of these tips like, hey, I've seen these two. I have the chills. Yeah. Because they were probably like, what the heck is going on? Mm -hmm. And not to mention, clearly, Unsolved Mysteries did what it was meant to do. Oh, yeah, 100%. I love that so much. So, callers told police that Monday and Strickland were living in Moses Lake. Monday and Strickland also saw the episode. (laughs) Wait, I'm just so confused. Are they into true crime and they were like, shit, you know? Or they were just... Like, paranoid and watching it? Yeah, or they were just literally sitting down that day and... Yeah, they're scrolling through TV and they see this episode with with them on it and the horrifying things they did to this man man on it. So yeah, Monday and Strickland also saw the episode and when the police found them, they were waiting in their friend's basement and another article said they were arrested in their home. So either way, they they were caught. And apparently they were, quote-unquote, calmly waiting for seven hours until the police got there. Seven hours? They were just chilling? They're like, okay, we're caught. I'm surprised they didn't run, to be honest. Me too. I would have thought they would have. Maybe they were in complete shock that they were on this fucking well-known TV show. (laughs) They're like, wait, is this about us? Wait, wait. So, Strickland, who was 26 at the time, and Monday, who was 17, were arrested and charged with armed robbery, kidnapping, and murder. February 12th, 1988, they were extradited back to Michigan. So, on to the aftermath. Unsolved Mysteries interviewed Strickland, and he said that he and Monday were innocent of the crime. That's bullshit. Monday decided to testify against Strickland, so her murder and kidnapping charges would be dropped. She said that during her testimony that she was aware and participated in the robbery, but didn't know about DeBoer's death until Strickland confessed to her two months later. Which, I find that hard to believe if the theory of what the police came up with was true, about how they were handcuffed together, and... Like, did she walk away when he shot her and she didn't hear it? Exactly, that's what I was just gonna say, is regardless... She was there, so where the fuck did she go in the meantime where the gas station was locked? Mm-hmm. And, and she didn't she hear wasn't, the gunshot. It, she should have had some scenario then of where she went. How wouldn't she know that Strickland took him mm-hmm. somewhere else and murdered him? Like, where did he go? Yeah. And why is his car still there? Yeah. And why aren't you there? Yeah. Monday had already given birth to Strickland's second son after testifying, She then went to juvenile home for seven months for armed robbery charges only, and she was released at 19 years old. Eek. So she went in around 17 and was released two years later. Monday then went back to live with her parents in their home, and her kids went as well. Strickland, on the other hand, was found guilty of all of the charges and is serving two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Mary DeBoer, who was Elmer's wife, was crying outside of the courtroom after the verdict was reached and said, quote, I can't say I'm glad it's over because it will never be over for me. 
God, that breaks my heart. I have the chills. That is oh. horrible. All for ten thousand dollars. Like how could how could you do this for any amount of money? Yeah, that poor woman. Oh my gosh. <sighs> Elmer DeBoer was buried in Crescent Hill Cemetery in Waterford, Michigan. Rest in peace, Elmer. Yeah, that is like one of the saddest things too. And I really think that Monday should have gotten off so easily. I agree because even if she didn't participate in actually pulling the trigger, she was part of something. And if anything, she was an accessory because she was the one who was fucking friends with him. Right. That's just heartbreaking. Really, really sad story. So moving on to our next case. This case was suggested by listener Shelby. Thank you, Shelby. Thank you, Shelby. This is the case of the Petrick family. And we're going to give a little background first. So, Daniel Danny Petrick was born August 24th, 1991. His parents are Mark and Susan Petrick. And Mark was a Pentecostal minister at the New Life Assembly of God in Wellington. Petrick's relationship with his parents was described as happy and loving. And he came from a really good family, from what I could find. Wow. They were a very nice, loving family. He also had two sisters named Heidi and Holly. He went to high school in Wellington, Ohio. And the family home was in Brighton Township, Ohio. But many news reports state him being from Wellington. I guess because the areas were so close and that's technically where he went to school. Like a crossover. Yeah. So, again, home was in Brighton Township. Mm-hmm technically. He was described by family and friends as a quote-unquote normal happy teenager. He was also said to be quote friendly and fun to be around by a fellow classmate. Petrick was quote-unquote enthusiastic about the Bible and his religion. So it's a very religious family Mm -hmm. and it seemed really tight-knit. And I feel like they had certain morals and a code of being a, like, kind, happy human that they followed, yeah. you know? So, I'm going to talk a little bit about a video game addiction that kind of stemmed in this case and why it's so important. At some point, Petrick was in a snowboarding accident and obtained an injury. He developed a staph infection from the injury and had severe spinal cord damage. And due to this, he was housebound for a year. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, so he couldn't do anything but stay at home. While he was stuck at home, his friend Jonathan Johnson introduced him to the Halo video games, which I'm sure you guys are all familiar with. For those of you that don't know about Halo, it's described by Wiki as, quote, a military science fiction media franchise and a series of violent games about war with aliens, most of them rated M for mature, for adult audiences by the ESRB. I used to play Halo all the time. Yeah, my brother did. It was very popular. I would play, like, that zombie game through Halo, and I would play it with my friend who passed away and a couple of my other friends. We would stay up till literally 3 in the morning, like, on headsets (laughs) playing each other, and Mom would always come in and go, what are you doing? doing? Go to bed. And I'm like, playing Halo, Mom. Yeah, play Halo. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, I remember the intro song to it. I don't know why. Uh, it creeps me the fuck out. <laughs> and sometimes Carson will, like, randomly yeah. start singing it. And I don't know why it freaks me out so much. Very popular in the 90s. <laughs> it, like, reminds me of, like... Church? Yeah. Yeah, movie. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Petrick soon became obsessed with these games. And he would, quote... Play them seven or eight hours a day at Johnson's house. Okay, I never went to that extent. That is a lot of hours on a video game. Yeah. That's a sleep cycle. Right. Don't you go to school? That's actually more than a sleep cycle for me. Yeah, Brynn (laughs) sleeps three hours. It's like she's a bat or something. (laughs) This is the second time in this episode you've called me a bat. And you know what's (laughs) funny? I was hanging upside down yesterday at the class I go to thinking... Oh, oh my, my gosh, bat. maybe I'm part bat because I enjoy this. <laughs> maybe. And maybe I'm a psychic and knew that. <laughs> Mark Petrick, who was, again, Daniel's dad, was not happy about his son playing these games. And remember, they're very religious. He's a Pentecostal minister. minister. Yeah. So he's not going to like violent video games like this. I feel like my dad didn't even like my brother playing Halo a lot because it was really, it was kind of violent. Honestly, even outside of being a parent that's part of a religious group, I could see not liking your child playing games like that. Yeah. Mark expressed that he did not approve of this video game violence and Petrick, again meaning Daniel, told his parents that he wanted to purchase the Halo game so he could have his own copies of them outside of being at the Johnson's house. Mark gave him the ultimatum to either stop playing the Halo games or leave the house. You go, Mark. You stand your ground. Yeah. Petrick decided to leave the house for the weekend, and he moved into the Johnson's house during that time. And I had read in other articles, most stated that he left for the weekend, Mm -hmm. but I had read in other articles that he left, like actually left, and he would just randomly go back home. Mm. But... The time gap makes me think that if he did, like, fully leave, it wasn't mm. for that long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know what I mean? Apparently, during this time, he played Halo with his friend Jonathan for up to 18 hours a day. Holy, Holy shit. shit. This wow. was also allegedly with minimal breaks. They were probably randomly just, like, peeing and then coming back and, like, eating, coming back. That's actually very disturbing. That's really scary. How are you even functioning at that point? That's an addiction. Upon returning back home, Petrick bought his own copy of Halo 3, which had just recently come out at the time. He obviously did this without his parents knowing, but Mark found that Petrick had bought the video game and immediately confiscated the game from his son. Mark put the game in his safe that also contained a 9mm Taurus PT-92 handgun. Wow. October 20th, 2007. This was about a week after the game was confiscated. Petrick found the key to his father's safe. He stole the game back from the safe and his father's gun that was also in there. <sighs> Around 7 p.m., Petrick walked up behind his parents and said, quote, Would you close your eyes? I have a surprise for you. I have the fucking chills all over my body. Same. And I had read that they were, like, sitting on their couch, mm-hmm. re- like, relaxing when, Yeah, when he walked up behind them. Daniel then shot both of his parents. His father said, quote, his head went numb, and then he saw blood pouring down from his skull. Oh, my God. 
I have the chills everywhere. This is just so horrifying. I just can't even wrap my head around this situation. Like, how how could you do this? Mm -hmm. And verbalize it as I have a surprise for you. Making it like a night. Like, like your parents are probably thinking, oh my gosh, she's going to give us something something so special. But just, we'll get back to that. Susan Petrick died from the gunshot wounds to her head, arms, and chest. Petrick then placed the gun in his father's hand. This was done to make it look like a murder-suicide, and Petrick said, quote, Hey, Dad, here's your gun. Take it. Holy shit. This whole thing is, It's so like, disconnected. It's so disconnected, but it's also somebody that, like knows what they're doing planned this is something that you don't just like oh my god i shot like you would run you would freak out i mean everybody has a different reaction but you don't knowingly put it in your dad's hand and be like okay i'm gonna stage this to look like a murder suicide yeah like take this touch this fucking terrifying that somebody could just turn like that a few minutes later his sister and brother-in-law heidi and andrew archer arrived at the home They had planned on watching a baseball game at her, meaning Heidi's, parents' house. And they arrived two hours earlier than they had originally planned. Thank fucking God. Yeah, because clearly, Petrick was not expecting them to show up in that moment. Mm -hmm. Petrick stopped them outside and told them not to go in because their parents were fighting. Again. You know like what you're you came doing. Up with, you came up with a ex- solution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They heard groaning from inside, and in some articles I had read, they heard groaning of their names. Ugh. Like, someone calling their names. Like Heidi, yeah. And they forced their way in past Petrick. They, of course, saw the horrific scene, and Heidi called the police. When I had read this, I was also thinking, thank God he didn't then go do something to them. I know, because they were unsafe at that point, yeah. too. We will insert a clip from the police call here. What's going on? I don't know what happened. I just came over to my parents' house because we were going to watch the game. And um, my mom is shot and my dad is shot and my brother's here. Does anybody know what happened? Did, did your brother shoot your parents? So, during the police call, you can tell, like, Heidi at first, she didn't know what the fuck was going on. Like, she didn't know her brother did this. She was so confused as to what happened. And even though it was nearly impossible for him to talk, Mark was able, eventually, to convey through a broken jaw that Daniel had committed the crime. Oh, my God. This is just so beyond and like so imaginable yeah yeah while his sister was distracted petrick took the family van and drove away to his friend steve's house to escape and he took the video game with him when he left i just can't wrap my head around this it's so it's it's insane mm-hmm. thankfully he didn't even make it there and he was arrested on the drive over And there are videos online of him being pulled over and arrested, Mm -hmm. and he says things out loud like, I hope my dad's alive. I don't know if he was actually hoping that, right? but he was also maybe, who knows, this is me speculating, maybe he was trying to prod to see if they said, like, no, your dad passed. Mm -hmm. 
but apparently as well on the way over to his friend Steve's house he called Steve and kind of gave a scenario of what happened and Steve didn't believe him but told him to come anyway and then the police arrested him on the way there yeah there's a lot caught on video and recording or whatnot by some kind of miracle Mark Petrick survived the shooting after being in a two-week coma. Oh, my God. Thank thank God he did. Yeah, and this poor man had to have his whole jaw redone on the one side of his face. This whole thing is just so disturbing. So, moving on to the trial. Petrick's trial took place December 15th through 17th, 2008 at the Lorraine County Court of Common Pleas in Elyria, Ohio. The judge was James Burge, and the defendant, meaning Petrick, rejected a jury trial. 25 people came to support Petrick. Relatives, friends, and immediate family testified at the trial. This included his grandfather and his friend Jonathan Johnson, the one who had been playing the yeah. Halo games with him. Petrick was seen crying. I don't even know how I feel about that. And his father, Mark, was supportive of his son, saying that Petrick, or Daniel, had deeply regretted shooting his parents. And this is a quote from Mark Petrick. Quote, he still does not understand why he did something so terrible. Of course, to each their own, you know, like if that's what his dad has to do to move on and... And cope with the whole thing, yeah. Then by all means, whatever is easiest for the family, we always have said that and we'll support them, but the whole thing is just crazy to me. Yeah, and I feel like the fact that he was crying, yeah, some people could take that as being remorseful, but some people can also see it as crocodile tears. Right. Who knows how... And, like, make your own decision there. Right. Who knows if it's regret, if this was mental illness, or if he's a fucking psychopath. Right. On to the prosecution's case. So, prosecutor Anthony Sillo made Petrick out to be a heartless killer. Anthony said he showed no remorse for his actions and tried to make it look like a suicide. He argued that the crime was planned carefully, knowing his sister and her husband would be arriving at the house two hours later, but when they arrived, it clearly had ruined his plan because he was in a panic and, like, ran outside. Which, yeah, that's a solid argument. Right. In a psych report ordered by the defense, Petrick admitted to planning the murder of his parents for one week. So that's premeditation. I don't see how you can argue insanity with premeditation Of that extent involved. Right. Yeah. So, on to the defense case. James Kersey was the attorney that represented Petrick. They did not deny any of the facts of that day's events, but they instead argued the insanity defense. They said that the video game addiction was the underlying psychiatric condition that kind of led to the insanity. They also argued that because of the stress on his body related to the staph infection and spinal injury, he was more susceptible to being influenced by the game. I'm sorry, who made that claim? Who the fuck made that claim? (laughs) I'm just gonna, I can't. I wonder if that was speculation on their part or if they actually had a medical professional validate that. I don't know, know? but I, I don't buy it. And like, he was home for a year how is this, the staph infection and everything still playing a part after a year? I don't know. Yeah. Petrick claimed he was not in the right state of mind to know the full effect of shooting his parents. 
To put it in another way, he and his defense claimed that since he was playing the violent video game for so long, he didn't grasp that real-life death is permanent. That is the stupidest fucking argument I've ever heard in my life. I mean, come on. He's fucking 16 years old. You're telling me that he didn't realize that his mom wouldn't just pop back up to life after he shot her? I think that that is mind-blowing to me that they even use that as a defense. Mm -hmm. Because regardless of the reasoning behind why he did this or if he actually meant to, that is the stupidest fucking argument I've ever heard. Our Mm nine-year-old niece would know if something like that were to happen, that person is gone forever. Right. It's something that a 16-year-old would know. Yeah. That is so... Oh my god, that is so dumb. And of course, they're saying that the levels of the video games can be played over and over again, even after being killed. So that's what they were arguing. Kersey said that therefore, Petrick may have expected his mother to return back to her healthy, normal state after shooting her. I don't fucking buy it. That is the dumbest argument I've ever heard. Yeah. It's like, unless the client you're representing, meaning Petrick... Is like five. Is literally from another planet, or yeah, four years old, yeah. or or has the mentality of a four-year-old. Right. That argument, I don't understand how that was even presented seriously in court. I don't know. Kersey used family and friends' testimony to dispute the prosecutor's case because people in his life said that he was just a typical teenager. So that was part of the defense case. The defense did not present a psychologist for expert opinion on mental effects of a violent video game, which probably was on purpose. Did the prosecutor then say, I would like to request this of you? Because that would have been something useful to back up. Yeah. Yeah, you know? Yeah, I wonder if that happened. There should have been an expert opinion on if this could actually mentally affect you. Right. The conviction, Petrick was convicted for aggravated murder, attempted aggravated murder, and tampering with evidence. Petrick could not be sentenced to death due to his age, but the judge sentenced him to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 23 years. This was the minimum sentence. The max sentence was life in prison without parole. Which I feel like, I mean, yeah, the possibility of parole in 23 years is definitely lesser, but not by much, I feel like, compared to no possibility of parole. I don't know, I feel like there's not a huge difference between the two. According to an article from the Chronicle, Judge Burge, who was the judge during this trial, quote, stated his quote-unquote firm belief that video games can trigger the same physiological responses as psychoactive drugs, such that when you stop, your brain won't stand for it. I don't know. I'm not an expert. And I feel like that's just a person, even though it's a judge, that's also just speculation. Like, you're not, you haven't done studies on this. Right. You know? Like, Like, it's not proven fact. The, like, science and the tests and the studies that were done. Right. Like, when it comes down to it, it's an opinion, really. Right. Moving on to the aftermath. Petrick is currently incarcerated in Grafton Correctional Institution and will be eligible for parole in 2030. That is not too far from now. Nope. Mark Petrick, who again is his father, continues to visit his son in jail and expressed that he has forgiven him. Halo 3 publisher Microsoft made a brief statement regarding the events that unfolded. Quote, 
we are aware of the situation and it is a tragic case. Which, I'm sorry, for a big franchise like that, you should be giving a little more... Yeah, I just feel like they, as a big company, didn't want to, like, dig themselves a hole, so they just kind of made it super brief. Yeah. It's more than a tragic case, though, whether the game was involved and video gaming was involved or not. Yeah. Maybe they felt that they had no part in their video game yeah. didn't have a part in the, in his psychological state. Right. That yeah. might have been their perspective on it. Yeah. yeah. True. This is just so, as usual, just so awful. and It's just a really sad thing that can happen from, like, a seemingly healthy family and... Out of nowhere, apparently. Right. Yeah. Like, he's 16 years old. He was a great kid. He had 25 people come to support him and testify for him, Mm -hmm. saying that he is this great kid. And then, like, why do you do this horrific thing to your parents? I mean, I'm so sad his mom didn't survive, but I'm so glad his dad did. I know. And it's like, what would his mom's stance be on all of this if she was still here, you know? Mm -hmm. I think about that a lot, because, like... His dad is one person, but his mom is something, someone totally different that could feel a completely different way. Mm-hmm. And maybe she knew things that his dad didn't know, or I don't know. I just wonder what her stance would have been on everything. Yeah, I had watched a couple of videos with his dad just being interviewed for different things and whatnot. And apparently, when he first came out of his coma, he verbalized the hate he had for his son and yeah. how he like people would bring stuff up about him and he'd be like don't fucking mention his name around me like I hate him yeah and then whether it's because of his beliefs or just his perspective or his coping and mm-hmm. the way he is choosing to move on is just through forgiveness and like Kelsey said earlier that's his choice and no matter what we're going to support a family member's choice, especially with what he's been through and the horrific things he's been through, whether we understand that choice or yeah. not, that's not that's not for us to say. Right, it's not even our place. Yeah. But I've heard people that have dealt with things like this saying that forgiveness is, like, their only solace mm-hmm. in this situation, and that's the only way that they're able to move forward because they don't have the weight of hatred being on them anymore. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was just his way of coping. And he was a very religious man, so... Who knows? Right. I just don't know how I would cope with right. something like that. Exactly, and hopefully we never have to find out. Yeah. I'm just so happy he survived and whatever he's choosing to do with his life. Hope he moves on. Yeah. Peacefully. Yeah. And, yeah, with that being said, do you have anything else to add or should we get into our spiel? I think that's it. All right, so let's get into this spiel. I'm going to take my glasses off. <laughs> my hand, Wait, feel my hands real quick. Same. They're the same temperature. <laughs> Yours are warmer. You feel, you feel the same. <laughs> We're freezing. <laughs> um, okay, so you can find us on Facebook at Crime Cults and Coffee. That's where we post our weekly resources, photos, if there's ever information to contact for somebody that's missing. We also put our coffee recipes in there. Also, you can find us on Instagram at Crime Cults and Coffee. That's where we post photos, our weekly coffee reviews, and the link link tree in our bio shows all of the listening platforms. So if somebody's asking where they can find us, just show them that. Yeah, and please always check out our show notes for each episode too. I know we don't mention that as often unless we're saying, oh, we'll put this in our show notes while mm-hmm. doing the case. But those also always have 
if there's any information connected to the case, it'll be there, including last week's episode with the steps you can take for Bianca's Law. Mm -hmm. Anything like that is always in our show notes. So, if you have a case suggestion like Shelby for this week or a listener story, you can either email us at crimecoltsandcoffee at gmail.com or you can send us a DM at crimecoltsandcoffee on Instagram. If you would be so kind to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or any listening platform that will allow you to do so, we would greatly appreciate that. If you send us a DM screenshot of it being your review, we will send you free stickers. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do that, it's okay. We still love you. You can like, follow, subscribe on any listening platform of your choice, and that will let you know when new episodes come out each week. Yeah, so you heard it here. Do all that stuff. First hand with <laughs> us together. We're back together. Probably not going to happen again for a while. <laughs> all right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Regarding this case and our resources, follow us at Crime Cults and Coffee on Instagram and Facebook.